This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. Our guest today is the great Viggo Mortensen. He's one of our most talented, versatile, and beloved actors. Um, I also consider him a friend. Vigo has uh, mesmerized audiences over the years in a wide range of uh, roles. Eastern Promises, A History of Violence, uh, uh, Captain Fantastic, which is not a Marvel movie, but a brilliant uh, film about a, a dad and his kids who decide to live off the grid. And of course, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's such a wide variety of roles. He's been nominated numerous times at the Screen Actors Guild, the Academy Awards, the Golden Globes, and the uh, BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and uh, Television Arts. Uh, Vigo gives another brilliant performance in his latest film, Falling, but that's not all. He has written, directed, produced, and stars in this uh, incredible film that I had a, a lucky chance to see early on. But wait, that's not enough. That's Those aren't his only jobs of this film. He's also composed the music. This is now we're in Chaplin territory here. So this is this is uh, amazing, Vigo. And I know your many talents, and I know how numerous languages that you speak. I know that you're a poet and you're a painter and great photographer. I also know you as a wonderful human being uh, and a friend. And I'm honored to have Vigo Mortensen here on Rumble. Welcome, Vigo. Thank you, Michael. It's very nice to talk with you. And uh, I wish we were doing it in person there where you are in New York City or, or anywhere. Yes. And but, you are in Madrid um, yes, where you I, live. And um, someday soon, I think we will be able uh, to be uh, in the same room again. At least that's my hope uh, for this year. And um, but what's this? I mean, what's it? It's as a filmmaker. I mean, this is this is your directorial debut, as it's called, but it is. And I know that you've wanted to do this for a long time. I I know over the years, geez, so we go back to the, maybe the first time I met you was 2004. The Bush. Uh, the, the second, uh, yes, the election between Bush and Kerry. And we were out on the campaign trail. And I remember one incredible night in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. And uh, we, we called it the Slacker Tour. And, uh, and you were with us on that. But as filmmakers, um, to not be able, first of all, to do what we do in this time that we're in. Um, but, but you made this film pre-pandemic. You shot it pre-pandemic. Finished and, it just before the pandemic hit. Okay. So I, I, you know, I'm not in this situation uh, because my last film came out before the pandemic, but I, I, all oh, friends of mine and people that have, they've spent large parts of their lives on the films that they've been working on. And then, and then it has to come out now during uh, the pandemic. I mean, I, I don't mean to start with such a, a depressing thought, but it's, it, I have to say on one hand, I wish this film, this is such a beautiful film, um, was playing in a thousand theaters, 2000 theaters across the country um, right now. On the other hand, I can, I can tell you having watched it again recently at home. Um, it, it's a powerful movie that fits in perfectly with what we're all going through right now. And maybe this is the perfect moment for it. Maybe this is the time. I'll let you tell the story 
and you can give away as little or as much as you want about this story, but it is, it's very moving. It's profound. And it, it tackles something very difficult, something that I think exists in a lot of families. But I'll let you explain uh, falling. Well, um, thank you. It's, it's um, I mean, it's yes, it is a challenging time to, to try to put a movie out <laughs> during the pandemic. But it's always challenging to try to find someone to believe in a story that you want to tell, you know, on film. It's always a big challenge. Right. To make it is a challenge to get people's attention so that they maybe will see it and consider it as a story. It's always life is a challenge. Everything's difficult all the time, you know. And you know, during the pandemic, we're certainly conscious of the fact that life is is fragile. It's precious. It's could be snuffed out any second. Anybody could get sick or die at any time, no matter what age they are. <clears throat> no matter how much money they have, that, that's just true about life. And we don't usually think about it or like to think about it any more than we like to think about death. But these things are, are, are going to happen <laughs> to everyone sooner or later. And now we're more conscious of that. I choose to think that that's a positive. You know, I think it's good to think about life being short, life mm-hmm. being just because you'll maybe uh, make the most of, the time you have, and maybe you'll think about how you talk to people. And one of the issues the movie deals with is the problems that a family can have, serious problems, communicating with each other, polarization within families, conflict, anger, hatred, um, hateful speech, misunderstandings, um, saying and doing things that you'll always regret and wish you hadn't said Mm -hmm. or done. Um, this is happening in our society now a lot. And so, as you said, rightly, I think, even though it's been frustrating to have to wait all this time since we finished editing the movie to find a way to get it to audiences and it's coming out, you know, now today it's available, um, in the United States and Canada. Finally, it's been out in other countries, but because it does deal with this communication problem, you know, or non-communication, absence of communication and empathy of any kind, it is very timely. In a way, unfortunately, but in another way, it's high time we had these conversations, I think. You know, we need to do that. And maybe it takes a pandemic of, you know, a COVID pandemic for people to start thinking, hell, I mean, I could be gone tomorrow. My friend, my, you know, these people that I'm arguing with could be gone tomorrow. Maybe I should speak to them with a little more kindness, even if we disagree, you know, and maybe there's a different way to relate to each other. You know, we can agree to disagree while still attempting to communicate. We don't have to agree to disagree and everybody goes in their own corner and only. Mm -hmm. Yeah refers to or engages with people and ideas that they're already comfortable with. It's like, if we want to advance as a society, you know, in a more fluid way, I mean, nature has a way of punishing missteps and society has a way of uh, auto-correcting itself. Eventually it can take longer and be more painful or it can go a little faster and ha- more harmoniously, that's up to us. Right. That's a well, let's, choice, you know. 
let's set up the the story for and people. So yeah, it's a family story. The main characters are a father and a son. The father's played by Lance Henriksen, who's a legendary actor who's been in great, great actor. Two hundred eighty movies, most of them genre movies, sci-fi, horror, and so forth. Um, some that are just unclassifiable, but he's always riveting. There's always something believable about what he does. He's committed as an artist. He's he's really good, and he has this great presence and so forth. Um, he plays this the patriarch, and he is someone who is at the early stages of dementia. He's a man who's a farmer who's been living for decades by himself, um, and who has become more isolated and more bitter in the course of his life, in part because, you know, of his nature and mm-hmm. his upbringing, but things that have happened in his life that he's never gotten over, like that his wife left him with her kids, you know, because of his sort of inflexible attitude about certain things. And I am one of those kids now grown up. I'm his son. And this man who lives alone on this farm has agreed to come to California at the beginning of the story where, where, where you I, live. Yeah. Where I live and where my sister lives, who's played by Laura Linney, fabulous actress. Right. Does a great job as, as Sarah. And my name is John in the story and Willis, our father has agreed to come out. So I go get him, bring him from, you know, snowy Northern New York state out to Southern California. And he's agreed. Yeah, it's time. We're going to find a place for you to live near us and where things will be more manageable. And, you know, even though he doesn't want to talk about it or acknowledge the fact that he's slipping, there's a part of him that's for a moment in time, he thinks about it. But then as soon as he gets there, he's like, nah, I don't want to do this. And so he doesn't really, it's, it's a very difficult uh, relationship. Eventually he just refuses to make that accommodation. He would rather be alone and bitter. And, right. and what the movie explores to some degree or, a great degree is this problem of communication, this, I guess, other pandemic that we're going through as, as, as a society right now. Um, and, and it's not a movie that gives you answers or tells you what to do or espouses any ideology. I don't, I don't like stories that tell you what to think or feel and give you answers. I like stories that are interesting enough that they pose questions that you're interested in answering for yourself. And one of the main questions in falling is, are there people that you can't communicate with? Are there people that don't deserve to be communicated with just because they're so awful, because they're racist, because they're misogynist, because they're homophobic, because they're all these things that Willis shows himself to be because they're bitter and nasty and they don't treat you with respect. And, you know, it's easier to condemn someone and dismiss them if you don't get along with them. It's certainly easier when you're younger and if you've had no experience taking care of an old person in your family mm-hmm. or a friend. Yeah. Um, it's not as simple. Well, I wouldn't put up with that shit. I, I'm not going to talk to him. It's like, or her. It's not always that simple. You know, life is complicated. And in this story, the character I play has made a decision. And he says so in a scene about a third of the way through the movie where the dad has just gone on a tirade. He's slipping in and out of Right. You know, that, that dementia, you know, because it's late in the day, one day. And he's insulting him and he's saying, you know, homophobic things. So the character I play is, is in a relationship. He's married to a man. They have an adopted daughter. And this is just like unthinkable for the father and has been right. for a long 
time. So it's just one of the elements that they disagree with about uh, or at, at odds about. And he's insulting him and he's insulting the memory of John's mother. He's just throwing the book at him in terms of offensive speech and language, you know, and, and, and attitude. And John says to him at one point, look, Dad, you can insult me all you want. But I made a decision. I made myself a promise that I am not going to get into another big blowout with you because I want, I want to help you, you know. And John knows that this old man who happens to be his father, who's a kind of a hateful, bitter old man, he does need help mentally and physically. And he also knows that he's not going to accept help from anybody. The only person that even has the slightest chance to help him, to accept help from, is, is John, the character you know I'm playing. And so he's decided, okay, if I want to help this guy, I can't do what I've done in the past all through my life with my father, which is give as good as I get and have these blowouts, and then we don't talk for months or years, and then we try again and so forth. No, now it's too late. Now, I need to help him. And if I want to help him, the only way I'm going to be able to do it is I'm going to have to take a lot of crap. And as a narrative thing in the story, it's like you're tensing. It's like if it was a bow and arrow, you're pulling back the string, pulling it back impossibly far. And either that, the wood, the bow is going to break or the string is going to snap. Something's going to happen. And it does. And John's just a human being. And eventually this thing, which he's making a conscious, difficult effort to like put up with a lot of crap, especially yeah. the way my father talks about my mother, who yeah. is a figure. She's kind of like the conscience of the story, the moral fulcrum or center of the story in a way. She's the bone of contention often for him, for my character, and for my sister, you know, Sarah, played by Laura Linney. Um, he just snaps at one point, and it all comes out. And they both say, the father and son, things that they probably regret later having said to each other. It's, it's awful. Um, yeah. But that's, it's, you know, watching this, watching this movie, yeah. it's, it's like watching, <clears throat> you know, everybody's had that Thanksgiving dinner where there's a family member that's just off their rocker and it's, and you don't know what to do or say, but this is like this family in the, as portrayed in this film, it's like one awful Thanksgiving dinner after another after another, after another, it's in whatever relationship, whatever, whatever day that your father, the character in the film wakes up, he's just got a new bone of contention that he is, uh, that he is just angry at the world, angry at you, angry at, at as you said, his wife left him so many years ago. And, and you, and we've all known people that can't get over this stuff in their lives, yeah. you know, and, 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 and their lives are ruined by it because they decide to let that take over. But probably at his core, uh, Willis, yeah. the, your father in this movie, at his core, he's he was probably wrecked by his parents. Yeah, they were probably wrecked by their parents. Right. It's like, how do you, you know, and you or your character, you're trying to break the cycle here. Yeah, well, you he don't want you don't want to be your father's son. No. And um and yet you love him because he's your dad. Unfortunately, what people are doing is they're not saying we have to sit down and talk. You know. Right. I and know. You have to sit down and talk even though you hate me and you don't want to talk. We must talk. We must I will insist on it, right? And right. Somebody, I mean, and that's the problem. That's why I say that the, 
bad communication or no communication is the other pandemic. And we're not going and it's going to last a lot longer than the COVID pandemic and right. all its variations. Right. You can't right. cure it with a vaccine. You can only cure it by listening to people first. Right. And not listening to prepare your counterattack in in the uh, know thine enemy sense. Uh, not in order to attack someone. Do you right. Listen to them. You listen to them to really try to understand how could they possibly have a uh, a worldview so totally different from mine. The facts. How could they? How can they believe these things? But not in a not insulting them and not dismissing them. It's much easier right. to confuse people and dismiss them uh, than it is to try to understand them. It's just, that's more work. It takes a lot more work to be stubborn. And in a way, in, in the movie, that's one of the issues that's there. And it's, you know, interesting. I've had reactions from people that have gotten that aspect of it, the communication thing, and other people that dismiss it, you know, because they see a guy, you know, these even reviewers that talk about, you know, they love people just mayhem and violence in Marvel movies and other movies. And yet when it's in real life, psychological and verbal violence right. in a family, oh, no, no, you can't have an old white guy saying racist things, homophobic things. <clears throat> what are you talking about? It happens all the time. Our president's been doing it for four, did it for four years. What right. the hell are you talking about? We can't see stories like that. What the, where, what do you, where are you coming from? We have to be able to say these things, talk about them, air them out and listen and, and try to, it's not just, oh, I'm going to lead by example, but I refuse to talk to anybody that I disagree with. We'll all just right. stay in the corners and hang out with and, and talk with only people we know. We'll only right. watch news sources that agree with our, our, our pre-existing views. It's like we have the most ability technically that human beings have ever had to understand history, culture, other nations, other races, religious beliefs, atheists, you know, anything, nature, right. everything. And yet we refuse to educate ourselves. And some of us think we're super smart in doing that. We refuse to, to learn anything else other than what sort of fits into our worldview. And just, there's, there's no future in that, you know. And in, in our story and falling, it's, there's a yeah. – I'm not telling people they have to do this. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying in this, I don't like stories that give you answers or you know tell you resolve things. I like questions. So the question is: Are there people you can't communicate with? Are there people that don't deserve to be communicated with? I don't think so. And in this story, there's a, there's someone who's as stubborn about trying to communicate with his father, who doesn't seem to have any interest in communicating with him or anyone else. He's great with nature, you know, but he's right. not good with people. He could give a fuck. And what do you do? You know, there's not, there's no guarantee. That's the thing that people don't like. They like some guarantee. Well, I want a guarantee of a result. It's like, well, you might be really stubborn and try to communicate with someone who's not willing to communicate with you, and you may never get anywhere. You got to try. Yeah. If you write them off, then, right. it's over, then there is no progress. The so I think a lot of people are feeling um, despondent about that there may not be any hope in terms of what you're talking about, being able to communicate with somebody who's so far, who seems so far gone. So if people are, if they can't communicate, if they don't even want to try to communicate, um, and if we are that lost, 
then where's the hope for just in the case of this pandemic of, you know, in this country, if, if we all don't do certain things mm -hmm. and all of us, look, all of us don't, I think what the scientists have said, if even 75% of us can just do the social distancing, wear the masks and get vaccinated. Get, get vaccinated. Yeah. And I, you know, hear from my friends who are more on the left saying they don't know if they want to get vaccinated. They don't trust it. Uh, Trump rushed it through to get reelected. Uh, there's never been a vaccine this fast. You know, you hear all the, and it's all seems these are rational criticisms or concerns. But at the same time now. Well, it's like saying as an astronaut. I don't know if I want to get on that rocket to the moon because nobody's ever gone to the moon before. So people have made the vaccines faster. Maybe that's called scientific human progress. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I mean, I don't know. Yes, something could go wrong, but you could trip and fall walking down the street. You know, I mean, if there's one thing the pandemic has taught us is that life is precious. You got to make the most of it. You could get sick and die at any time. That's always been true. It's, but now everybody's aware of it. So what are you going to do about it? Well, get vaccinated. <laughs> you know, it's like. So we now know after, you know, the vaccine's been out for over two months. Nobody, people have not been dropping like flies. I don't think any, nobody's died. Uh, people have had sore arms. Um, and so it seems like it's okay. Maybe that's what people need is just to see others do it and then get some courage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So should people like I, should I do it? Should I do it publicly and just say, hey, everybody, look, I'm still standing. Couldn't hurt. Let's get this. Because the thing is, if 70% of us get vaccinated, um, we have a chance of getting out of this this year. This virus probably isn't going away for quite some time. It's going to mutate. We got a problem. Right. No doubt. But we also don't have to be prisoners to it mm -hmm. either. And I'm just so afraid that we've gone so far down the road in opposite camps that I have even lost the ability to figure out a way to, to talk to people in the old way that I used to talk to people who I disagreed with. If I was sitting next to somebody on the plane and I, uh, they would say to me, oh, you know, I've seen your movies and I don't, I don't like what you say. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and they'll bring up a subject like abortion, you know, right. they're against abortion and I, and I will respect them. And they believe <clears throat> that a fertilized egg is a human being. Right. Okay. I don't believe that the science doesn't say that, um, you know, a seed is not a flower. A stem is not a flower. A flower is a flower. But that's what you believe. So what I would always say to the person is, if you believe that about abortion, then you should never get one. You Seriously, I support you never having an abortion. But you don't want to say to somebody else that they can't do something because, because you don't want to do it. You right. know? And yeah, isn't that the way we were taught to live? Is just kind of like live and let live. Mm -hmm. My na my neighbor believes in that religion, or my neighbor over there has a really goofy way of doing this, or maybe oh, my neighbor over there isn't. Why aren't they mowing their lawn? Oh, because they've they believe in the new concept that we should just let grass and weeds and everything grow.
That's what they believe. Right. That's how they want their lawn. That's how they have their lawn. It's not my, it's not my business. I know it's, it's a, well, sometimes it's a matter of degree, but certain things are common sense. I mean, when you have uh, Congress people refusing to stop at metal detectors because they want, they don't want to divulge whether they're carrying, you know, a gun in their pocket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It is, you know, they, they wouldn't get allowed and and then they just push their way through and what's the poor security guard going to do? It's a congressman. And, and that's, that's, but that would never happen in an airport. You know, you refuse to go through the metal detector. You're not getting on the plane. (laughs) Right. You don't wear a seatbelt and you get stopped by a cop. You get a ticket, whether you think right to wear them or not. You know, it, it's, I mean, it needs to be that way for the masks right now, I think, but whatever, that's another story. This thing of live and let live. The tricky thing about that is that, some people interpret that as, you know, well, screw you. We're doing our thing. We believe in the lasers from outer space that are starting the forest fires. We believe, you know, that all the Democrats are cannibals and eat children. I don't even know what all this stuff is. And, right. uh, and that, you know, so forth. And we're just not going to talk anymore. I, I know that's not the live and let live you're talking about. I mean, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think that's good. I think we have we have to talk. You can be interested in other people while you're letting them live and let live, and you can disagree, and you can have yeah, right. you have to talk. That's that's the problem is that there people aren't talking anymore, and they're certainly not listening, which is the first order of business. You know that's the problem. So and what's it, our way? What's our way out of out of this? What's our way out of the pandemic? What's our way out of um, the the fact that there's such vitriol um, uh, between the the two sides? It, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if I, I mean, I have, I think I have some of the answer, but I don't have all of it. I don't know what to do, really. I think you have to treat people like even some, imagine someone that you're, you just want to yell at them because they're saying these really crazy things and even really destructive things, racist things, anti-Semitic things, misogynistic things, and you want to just shout at them. But then as an exercise, look at them and think, okay, they don't know it. Mm. But I know that they have terminal cancer and they're going to be dead in two months. Mm. And it's a human being. Right. Talk to them thinking that about that, even if it's not true. I mean, as an exercise. Yeah. This person. No, it's a great exercise. You know I, what I'm saying? Like, okay, yes. And I think you generally do this. You have to just be stubborn. You have to be a pain in the ass. But don't do it shouting and insult. Right, right. You have to just keep insisting. Like in a story where you're taking care of an older person, or in the right. case of the movie, you know, where it's someone who has dementia and they're really a difficult person, you know, it's right. wrote extreme character. It's like, does that person deserve help? It's like, hell yeah, everybody does. But he's someone who's just so offensive, right? They're still a human being. You know, that's what that's what we forget when we just shut people off completely and we right. start screaming at them. Certainly, if we punch them or shoot at them. But you see a lot. One of the ways that the story is put together, it's kind of a complex structure. There's a lot of, you go back in yes. time. Yes. From distant past and more recent past. And what happens there is that you, not by way of excusing anything, you get hints as you go along. It's the kind of stories. I mean, I basically made the kind of movie I'd like to go see where you get a few pieces That's of the puzzle. A good idea. 
as a spectator, you get a few pieces of the puzzle and you start to put it together. Then you little another scene, and then you see something from the past. Oh, another few pieces of the puzzle about the dynamic of this family and about the individuals and why are they the way they are? And why do they relate to each other the way they do? And with Willis, you see, even in the happier days, you know, from the early 60s, the mid 60s, late 60s, you know, it's a gradual progression, but there was always something there for him, which may or may not have to do with his upbringing. It just may be the way he is to some degree. Yeah. Um, but it's probably has, you know, there's some hints at that it's from how his father treated him. Not to excuse it, but you see that he's a person who's not comfortable with change. In other words, in his relationship with his wife, you know, the, the mother figure, Gwen, and with others, when they, you know, like if I have a friend who says to me, hey, guess what I just learned? Or I have this new skill, or I saw this movie, or would you like to read this book? It's a great book. And you go, oh, that's nice. Thanks. Something new. I can learn something. Willis is the kind of person that you say, hey, I have a new interest. You know, his wife says, I'm learning. I'm going to go take art classes down in Utica, New York. It's a bit of a drive. Can I borrow the truck? You know, and yeah. and and instead of thinking, oh, that's cool. You're going to learn how to paint. He's like, it's a threat. Anything that's a change, any evolution of the people around in the, in the lives of the people around him. Right. Not to mention changing times, the 1960s, 70s, whatever in society. It's like, what the hell? It's, you know, it's all against me. Anything. I mean, this was the Trump mentality. These overgrown babies playing soldier who go into the, you know, the Michigan, you know, government building with their, you know, yeah. yes. guns and dressed up like soldiers. It's like, you know, and some of them are ex-soldiers, unfortunately, but most of them are a bunch of guys living some fantasy like Rambo. Right. Right. And, uh, right. Anything you don't understand, it's a threat. It must be put down immediately. Shoot first, ask questions later. That's the kind of guy Willis is. And he always was, even in, in the gentlest of times. And it's like, it's disgusting in a way. And it's ridiculous and laughable and scary and lots of things. But they're still human beings. And it's like, why are they doing that? You know, and all these people were little kids at one point. And little kids don't come out of the womb behaving that way. So what happened? You know, it's trying to understand, I guess is what I'm saying. And imagine that someone's, you know, they could be run over by a truck in an hour. And then I'll think, maybe I shouldn't have yelled at him and called him every name in the book. Maybe I should have just tried to use facts, logic, even if they wanted to hit me or did hit me or didn't listen to me. You know, it's like, that's the only way. It sounds annoying dull, hopeless at times, that is the only way to right. gently insist, to talk to people and reason with them using facts like um, Howard Zinn did, like Noam Chomsky does. You know, and I'm not just picking people on the left, but there are people on the right and in the middle who speak reasonably, who use uh, a, a polite, respectful discourse with other people that's what we have to do. And that's right. something that's been lost. And we've been encouraged to think that that's old hat. It's boring. It gets you nowhere. If you want results, 
you got to be a son of a bitch. That's been encouraged for the last five years by Trump. And a lot of people have jumped on that bandwagon. It's like, yes, I'm upset. So I'll go and smash the windows of the Capitol, something unheard of. And, you know, and I'll threaten. And if I can grab someone in this euphoria, this mm-hmm. euphoria, if I, if they could have grabbed Ocasio-Cortez or, or Nancy Pelosi or God, I don't know, Mike Pence, some of them, they might have killed them. That's what they're saying they wanted to do. That we can't forget that. Yes. And we, that has to be dealt with and, and they're trying to do it. But how do we get to that point? You know, where right. does that come from? You know, that's what we have to talk about. It's like, guys, we disagree, but we must agree that that can't be. You know, there's a scene that happens in 1968 in the story, and it's my character's 10th birthday. And he uh, he's very proud. He's standing there and there's other kids that are invited. And there's uh, the mother comes in with a cake. Glenn does. And there's the moms of the other kids there. And and Willis is standing by the doorway of the kitchen. He's smoking a cigarette and he's so proud. He's beaming. He's so happy. Everybody's happy. And then his wife, you know, she's cutting up the cake after the candles are blown out. And she says, hey, honey, can you put your cigarette down for a second? Just give me a hand, like help me with the passing out the cake or something like participate. Normal. Right. And he says, why? And she says, she's like, "Uh oh, it's like you can tell. It's like you don't have to show scenes like that before you get from the way she reacts that this is not the first time. And she says, "Uh, never mind. Like, I can do it. You know, and he says, and, and then he says, what? He, he provokes it. It's like, yeah, he won't let it, it go. Yeah, he won't let it go. And she says, it's a, never mind. We're fine. And he says, he says, oh, now I can't relax and have a smoke in my own home. It's my house. You know, it's like it becomes, and then he goes, fuck this and walks out. And it's like, holy shit. The thing is that he, till the end of his life, will probably be convinced that she ruined that birthday party. Right. Whereas everybody in the room and probably most of the audience watching that scene on screen knows that he did it. But why did he do it? It's because he can't handle new information. It confuses him. It scares him. And so where does most violence and bullying come from? It comes from fear Uh, and fear of being ignorant, fear of of losing control. And this is a guy, and to some degree, typical of his generation, Willis, you know, guys who were born during or just after the depression, great depression and grew up through World War II. And at a time where boys were, were taught that you don't cry because that's weak. Right. You don't show emotions. That's weak. And you, you need to seem in control no matter what situation you're in, especially around women and especially when you grow up to be a father in a nuclear heterosexual, you know, family household, um, you're the boss. People adapt to you. You don't adapt to them. And you're the final word. You're the king at the table and you're king of the household. And that's the way men were brought up. And even very nice guys who are nice fathers had that sort of mentality. And But he has it to an extreme where the control thing is a problem for him. So he can't. He can't, it doesn't compute. So if you're doing something I didn't expect that you didn't do yesterday, right. or you're talking in a different way, or you're reading a book, why are you reading a book? Am I not interesting enough? You know what I mean? That kind of attitude. Right. So, I, and I think, mo- 
most people listening to this know this guy. Somewhere you've encountered this guy, somewhere in your life. Maybe not in your family, but you've worked next to him. It's, uh, it's, it's so, and I have to say, this film is so beautifully put together. You mentioned the, the editing um, process here, but it's so great. Every, if every filmmaker had as their ethos what you just said, that you wanted to make the film you wanted to see, I'd like to make a film like that. Because I, and I think people listen to this, I'd like to watch a film that you'd like to see. If you said to me, hey, Mike, I saw this great film, you should see this. But you you decided in making the film that that's the film you were going to make. And and as a result, um, the whole story is not unloaded on us in the first 10 minutes. So right. everything is explained. Um, it, it is layers are peeled off. You go back and forth in time. Things are not revealed until later in the film. You mm-hmm. don't know which way the story's going. You mm-hmm. don't know, you know, and that's, isn't that always what makes a great story in, in many ways is that is the, is the thrill of that surprise as the story unfolds. If you can figure out what's going to happen 10 minutes from now in the movie, you're watching a boring movie. Or life. I mean, life is that way. You know, you life know. is that way. You and I do not know what the rest of our day is going to be like. And, yeah. and, and you know, if it's one of my days, it, 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 could, not, <laughs> it could go south quickly. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this change thing. It's not just someone who's extreme like Willis and you can, we can all sit back, you know, self-satisfied and go, well, yeah, there are people like that. It's like, we all have a little bit of that. I mean, well, yeah. myself. There are certain, I mean, I try lots of things. I try my hand at lots of things because ever since I found out by pestering my mom about it, you know, like I think a dog died or a horse. And then I had heard, I started to put these ideas together. I'm probably two or three. It's like, yeah, that old person, I guess the grandma, whoever, they're gone. Gone means gone. And I know that dog, I saw that dog was dead. So I asked my mom one day, what happens? Are you going to die? And she's like, oh, you know, not for a you know, What are you asking me about that? Didn't want to answer the question. Right. You know, people don't want to answer that question. And right. she would understandably. And I, I insisted until she said yes, but it's not going to be for a long time. And I said, how do you know? She goes, well, that's what happens when we get old. And I said, don't worry about it. And, and then I, but I, I said, am I going to die? And she's like, oh, my God, do we have to? And I, 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 until I got an answer, I just pestered her, right? So ever since then, I've been interested in doing stuff. I get up every morning and I go, Ugh, I remember that knowledge. I swear to God, every morning I wake up and go, oh, time is limited. Let's go. Get up, you know, and do stuff. Relate to people, learn stuff. But... Even so, even though I'm interested in lots of things and I love talking to you and I like to see your movies and other people's and read books and talk to people from different cultures because, you know, you got one chance to learn stuff, you know, it's this lifetime. Right. So I, I'm afraid of change, just like Willis on some, to some degree. I, there's things that make me uncomfortable as a kid and even now, even though I, my, my job is public. I am not great in social situations always. I'm like, I'm uncomfortable. I'm awkward. I don't know. Or someone says, let's go learn about this. 
or I just signed up for a job and I have to learn a new skill and I put it off. I procrastinate. I'm worried about it. I'm scared about it. I think I'm not going to be able to do it or I'm not going to be able to understand it. Um, or I don't want to read that book. And then I mm -hmm. read it. Or I get halfway through and go, I don't like it that much. I'll read another book. But at least I tried. Right. I think as we get older, it gets harder. Right. To, to deal with change, to, to, to understand a new idea. And I think it's like any muscle. You got to exercise it. It's, it gets harder as you get older, I think, to be open-minded um, and to learn new things. And, you know, your first reaction to somebody that comes up with some new concept of political correctness or we can't insult this group of people. It's like, I never even heard of that group. What are you talking about? It's like, right. you can't resist it. It's like, well, is that necessary? It's like, and then after a while you go, well, yeah, of course, why not? You know, but it's hard. We are resistant to change. Right. It's, it's, it's human. Some people it gets out of hand and Willis is one of them. So uh, before we go any further, I want to give a, a shout out to this episode's underwriter, Signal Wire. Signal Wire is a new video communication technology designed by some incredible, brilliant software developers who just happen to be from Michigan. Over the past year, everyone has had to get familiar with endless video meetings. You know what I'm talking about, right? Too many people on the screen, crappy audio, crappy video sketchy security, and confusing IDs uh, for these meetings. Well, it's a new year, and you deserve a better way to work and collaborate remotely. SignalWire is a complete virtual office alternative that allows teams to collaborate as if they were all in the same location. It's built on the concept of always available video rooms. There's no time limits. No confusing meeting IDs, nothing like this. SignalWire has great video quality and audio quality. So I'm thankful that they have reached out to me to help Rumble, and I'm hoping that you'll see for yourself the high quality of their video conferencing technology. So go to SignalWire.com and use the code MORE, that's my last name, M-O-O-R-E, for a free 30-day trial. That's SignalWire.com. And remember, it's more. That's your code. When it says, what's your code? Type in my last name, M-O-O-R-E. And thanks to the good people at SignalWire for supporting this podcast and supporting my voice. You know, you, if I'm an alien, I land from outer space in the United States and I see the, the level of discourse or lack of discourse in the country, not just politicians, but in society and within families. I would ask myself, how does this society function at all? How do mm -hmm. why do people even stop at red lights? 
Why, how, do, how, do the, right. you know, how does anything function at this point? And this looks really serious. Is this the way the world is? Is this how humans are? This is appalling. I'm never coming <laughs> here on vacation again. <laughs> you know, I'm about to go to planet. <laughs> right. no, you know, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's a thing. It's a game that's moving as we play it all the time. And there are new surprises all the time. But that's always been true in life. It's just right now, it's it's very intense. Very intense. Now, you live in Spain. You live there. You live in Madrid. So being away from this, what's that feel like? Because I feel so, well, I've been in my own lockdown. I'm locked into this yeah. and living in it. And, you know, you're still an American citizen. So you're in New York City. Yes, I'm in New York City. Yeah. And um, I miss the United States. I miss New York a lot. I'll bet you do. Right. Uh, I miss my friends. I miss, um, I miss my family. I miss the landscapes of the United States. Um, I mean, I've, I, I move around a lot my whole life and I've lived lots of places and I, I always have felt it's more important how you are than where you are. I mean, you can make yourself at home anywhere. And, you know, as much as I can be a fan, you know, of certain sports teams or I have certain proclivities and all that, I never lose sight of the fact that we're all basically similar in our needs and wants right. and fears, you know, and that our fears and doubts, we don't have to live alone with them. We can share them with other people through stories, through conversations like we're having. You don't have to live alone. And, right. You know, you can live alone, but you don't have to feel like you're the only person that's afraid of getting sick and dying or worried about the future, worried about the economy, your economy, your friends, your, your people, your family, you know, and, and one thing that has always felt to me, and it's very much part of American culture, but it's also part of lots of other countries, um, almost all of them really. Um, and, and when it gets flares up to a, an intense degree, you know, it's that ugly kind of nationalism that happens. But what mm -hmm. I'm talking about is this idea, if we're talking about what's your country or all that, right. and do you miss it and so forth. The idea of American exceptionalism, which is almost like it used to be that that presidential candidates had to be shown in some image, you know, campaign image with the military or maybe with a farmer, depending on what right. region you're from. If you're a congressman from Iowa, you have to know the price of, you know, corn starch. You have to know you have to know what's going on in the market for farmers. You know, if you can get a picture taken of you riding a horse, wonderful in Texas. You know, if you can get a picture taken with cops, <laughs> and, you know, with going duck, duck hunting, it's duck hunting, you know, right. Dukakis, the poor bastard in the tank and, you know, that stuff. <laughs> right. Everybody seems to do that. But it, but it doesn't matter what political stripe you are. It's pure and good, like apple pie and the Bible, you know, to say American exceptionalism. America is the greatest country in the world. There is no country greater on earth. And I think that that is one of the most damaging things that is just accepted as normal uh, apolitically in the United States. It's like that's it's first of all, it's not true. You know, no country is as great as most every country thinks it is. And no country is as evil and deplorable as lo lots, if not most countries like to think other countries are or some other countries are. It's just stupid. We're people. It's a planet. You know what right. I mean? Like what the hell? But being so, but being in Spain though, you have seen that um, 
there are things where the average American, remember, most of us don't have a passport, so we never leave the country. But so we don't well, see how the rest of the world lives. Country, you don't have to. There's a lot in the United right. States. Right. We we've got <laughs> right. We we have we we go from the Arctic Circle uh, to uh, Key West, Florida. So we have all climates. We have yes, we're very blessed in this way, but we also don't see how the rest of the world lives. Now, mm-hmm. you being in Spain, you see. I don't know a lot. You know, I've never been to Spain. Actually, I've really? never been. No, I've never been to. I've, as much as I've traveled the world, but I know some things about Spain. Some I got a fa- spare bedroom. If you, if you ever want to come, I got a spare bedroom. Oh, well, I will, I will take you up on that because I have to, I, all the things I hear and the things I see, the things I read about Spain, like I didn't, you know, I complain a lot about how, Hey, we're Americans. We and the Brits invented the train and we don't have a single bullet train in this country. And, and I read that Spain per capita had more bullet trains, fast trains than any other country, or at least any other country in Europe. They have a very and, good rail system. Yeah. Good, good transportation system. Well, who would have thought we how would we know that as Americans that when you think good, speedy, dependable rail systems, think Spain. Yeah. I mean, I know? love Amtrak. I've crossed the country. I love driving, but I, I've crossed yeah. the country on Amtrak uh, you know, east, west, west, yes. east, north, south, south. You know, I mean, I've I've taken trains also also across Canada, and I love it. But it is true they're slower. They're not always on time. It's an adventure, you know. And it used to be that way here not so long ago. But you know, it's it's where you put your priorities as right. a country. You know, what do our taxes pay for in the United States, where you know socialism is. Is is like the word cancer, um, right? You yes. know, what is that? I mean, you've talked about this, you know, eloquently. But you know, we bail out the car companies, we bail out the oil companies, we subsidize this, that, and the other. Um, Medicare. I mean, it's like people love Medicare. Right. It doesn't you know, doesn't. We need it. It's like these things are are normal and natural. And in other countries, healthcare, education. You know, it's not perfect. There's bureaucratic problems. And sometimes there's conservative governments that come in and try to undo it. That's happened in Spain, too. And so it caught them with their pants down a little bit. The cuts to the healthcare system over the, you know, from 2011 through right for several years that 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 hurt the country when it came time to deal with the pandemic. But they're sort of recovering. Um, but that there's a priority, an unquestioned priority on health care for everyone that it's a right and that, yeah, you try to run it as best you can, but it's not something that's meant necessarily to, to generate a profit in the United States. If it doesn't generate a profit, well, you throw it out um, and let someone make some money on it if they can. Otherwise just forget about it, especially in certain neighborhoods where it's like, well, screw those people who sees them, who cares about these black people or whoever in poor neighborhoods, you know, things like that. It's like, it's, that's not the way in, in Spain, even though there are right-wing extremist parties that are against it, you know, it's a minority. Most people have accepted for years, and in most of Europe, especially Northern Europe, but all over, healthcare, everybody has access. You break your leg, you get sick, you go to the hospital. It's not like in the United States where for most people, it's like, maybe I'll wait a little longer. Maybe it'll get better. And by right. the time you go, 
they say, if you'd come to me three months ago, we could have operated and you'd survive. You're going to die. I'm sorry. Um, and you, people have to make choices, whether it's taking care of the elderly and their family or a serious disease or injury to anybody, whatever their age in your family. The choice is always, do I sell the car and take care of this? Do we sell the house? Do we move in with my parents again, even though I'm an adult with kids? Um, yeah. Or just not take care of it and keep the house. Well, may, maybe you or nailed it when you You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that should yeah. not be the situation. And if an economy generates so much income, as the United States does, where we can have this absurd. The other thing, American exceptionalism and supporting the military. Supporting the military doesn't mean that you just overspend to an insane amount, which has been happening for decades in the United States. We don't need all that shit. And it's not, no politician can say that. We're overspending, it's a racket. That money could and should go to bridges, schools, healthcare. Nobody should lack healthcare. Nobody should have to think about money when they get sick or when they need to go to school. It should not be an issue ever, especially in the, if it's the number one economy or one of the most potent economies in the world. Why? Why should that be an issue for any citizen ever? And you say that and you go, oh, you're a communist. It's like, no. <laughs> right. No, it makes common sense, actually. I mean, who... There's no system in the world where if you get sick, you could go bankrupt. You could lose your home. You could lose. Like That just seems that I think history will judge us poorly with this. Like why we waited so long and made people suffer simply because they got ill. They, 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 they got something happened. They had an accident and their life crumbles in front of them. And I don't and see that. Good, and people are good. And politicians count on that. Well, you know what? Our neighbor got sick with cancer, but we all pulled together in our neighborhood and we donated. It's like, wait a minute. Let's just do that nationally. Right. <laughs> Why right. does it have to be the guys on your street? Well, if you haven't behaved well in your life and you don't have any friends, you're out of luck, buddy. But if you're right. popular in your neighborhood, maybe your friends will, will give you money to pay for your bill. It's like, and you just squeak by. Right. And then you owe these guys psychologically, if not financially, a favor the rest of your life. No, it should be paid for by our taxes, period. Right. I don't care how that sounds. It's not that's a left-wing thing. It's a human no. rights thing. Right. And that's the way it happens in, in Spain, right? That's Yeah, it's not it, it, they have their problems. And sometimes sure. the region, a politician will cut funds for this or that. But... The general idea is, yes, you go. Like if you're a tourist and you're in Spain and you fall down or you get hit by a car, you go to the hospital, you get attended. They're not like, well, you got to show that you have the money to pay for this. No, you can you can get health care. You can get taken care of. Right. In the United States, well, they'll take care of you, but you're going to be in hawk the rest of your life. Right. Maybe. Right. Yeah, no, it's... Very likely. But this is a huge change for you making this movie. I mean, this is not what you've been doing for the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, uh, you, you know, you and I are not 22. Um, mm -hmm. We're not, you know, you've lived a life. And and so um, that creative process, 
you talked about getting up in the morning, like you get up and then you want to go because today is a new day and it, for all you know, it could be the last day. So right. you want to, but how does that fit in with your creative process in terms of, especially what you must, now that this film is done, you know, what are you going to do next? Or is, you know, you, my guess is you want, I know you've, you have other screenplays that you've been writing over a period of years. You know, do you want to, after this experience, do you want to do this again? Are you excited to do that again? Or would you rather just uh, stick to acting, which everybody would be happy with that too. So it's like, we're, we're you know, and, and you're not living the rat race of living in LA or New York and being in this business. And, you know, um, you know, that thing that that's, I think makes a lot of people in our, in our business kind of crumble because they get worried too worried that, Oh, I haven't had a film out in a year <laughs> or, you know, this or that. And it's like, and, and, and you've mentioned this before that your um, success um, did not occur in your twenties. You were an actor for many years and do, and you did a whole bunch of other jobs. You mm -hmm. lived a life uh, and, and really sort of the, I think the way that most people, the breakout roles that in Lord of the Rings that where people became very familiar with you that I'm guessing you were almost 40. Um, uh, I was 40. I turned, let's see when I was there filming, it was, when I just started filming, I turned 41. So wow. The first, yeah, so, now, so be, 44. Right. So between 20 years old and 40 years old, there's mm -hmm. all that, all that other stuff. Right. And, and then to do three Lord of the Rings films in New Zealand, I mean, you devoted at least what, I don't know, four, five years of your life mm -hmm. uh, to making those, those films. And thank you for that because they're all so brilliant. And one of the great memories I have in terms of my life is just before the third, the last one uh, uh, came out, um, <clears throat> the studio had not let Peter Jackson release the first two films, the, his, what we would call the director's cut, the cut he wanted to, he said right. it was too long. You got to cut a half hour out of it or whatever. And, and, um, but the success of the first two, by the time of the third one, they said to him, make the film you want to make. We're going to release what you do. Mm. And he, and he had the genius idea of going back to the first two, recutting them in, in the way he had originally wanted them. And then I don't know if this happened in cities across the country, but in New York at that time, in a big Times Square theater, they announced there was going to be a Lord of the Rings marathon as the third one was coming out where you would go for 10 hours. <laughs> You'd watch the first two the way that he wanted them. And then the third one. And I got to tell you, I went with my daughter and we, cause she was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And, and we, we were, so, we left there after 10 hours. Well, here's one thing I learned. And I, you know, I hope I'm always learning about how to be better at this, what we do, but, the first two that that when they first came out were maybe three hours long. We're now three hours and twenty minutes, or three mm -hmm. and a half hours long. And we, I said to my daughter, I said, after the first one, I said, "Damn, didn't that seem? It didn't seem longer. It actually seemed less hours, less minutes." And then we talked about it. and We figured out because he was allowed to go back and tell the all the little interstitial 
pieces of the story that when you, if you hadn't read the books, when you first saw it, you might've at times been, Hey, well, where they, who's that character? Where'd they go? What, you know, but when he got to make it his way, even though it was longer, it felt shorter. Yeah. I think um, we've all seen movies where, you know, you see a 90 minute movie and it's not well put together. You know, it's not well designed, structured, something, you know, and it's those 90 minutes can feel like three hours. And we've seen, as you, you're talking about, three hour movies that go flying by because they've got yeah. your all the way. It flows. And, you know, images, just like music, just like sound recordings, are about timing, tempo, rhythm, you yeah. know. Yeah. And that's what you got to get right. That's what I learned. I mean, doing the editing, I love the editing process of falling because it was, I was like, what's this going to be like? I'm like, I'm interested. Um, and then I realized it's not that different from what I've been doing with music for many years, you know, which is mm -hmm. recording it, listening yes. to it a lot and finding the right way to edit, you know, and sequence things and mix it. And it's just, you just have to give it time. And the images, just like the sound does, the images, will speak to you. They'll tell you what they need. You know, right. every scene's different of every movie, which is different. It's like this one requires this. It's not boom, 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 boom. It's boom, 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 boom. Or maybe it's only boom right there. Or maybe you don't even need that boom. And we can switch <laughs> it out for something else. Let's right. see how that sounds. You know, and it's that's and when someone gets that right, it doesn't matter how long it is. If you're involved, you're involved. Right, uh, right. As an audience member. Well, I think the example of music is so true. Even I, when we're out shooting a documentary, I usually, um, over the years, I've made like mixtapes or what, what we would used to call mixtapes. I still call them mixtapes because I want to, as we go in the, in the crew van from one place to the next, I want to play the music that's in my head. Not just because of the, not so much because of the lyrics of the song, but because of the beat and because of the rhythm and because the, I want us in a certain headspace yeah. because in a documentary, there's not a script we're following. So I can't control. There aren't lines that I'm trying to get people to say. So I've, but I do know the beats that I want and it's, and I, and I know this, maybe, I don't know if anybody else does this, but I love playing music while making a movie. I love playing music in the edit room. I just, I just think mm -hmm. that, it I think a lot of people do do that. I mean, I think, uh, I, you know, athletes do it. You see them mm -hmm. with their headphones on before a game, whether they're soccer players or right. players, baseball. They're listening to music. They're getting into the headspace they need to be in right. to perform. And right. you see actors do this. I mean, I remember, I mean, every movie, there's, there's certain pieces of music that I can hear today and sometimes it'll remind me of a particular shoot. I remember... The music I was listening to when I first we first started shooting Lord of the Rings, and I was listening to a particular type of music a lot uh, for whatever reason at that time. Mm. And the the and you know lots of different as you're listening to at any given time in your life. But then it gets focused and okay, I'm not going to listen to all twelve of those. I'm going to listen to these three and this one particular one. I don't know why I'm going to listen to this one over and over because it feels right for this moment right. this character i'm playing and i think people do do that a lot and I, I i i think directors do that as well um there were certain i mean with the music one of the reasons it's not because i'm a megalomaniac uh, that I, 
consider myself one. But I did do the score for Falling. And what happened there was that with Falling, you know, as you said, there's been many stories I've tried to tell. But with Falling, it took four years and we got the money, all of it lost, you know, it was taken away, got some of it. Taken, you know, the thing that happens in independent films all the time. You're about to go. OK, we're all set. No, we don't. The investor decided to pull it and do something else or we don't have enough or somebody got sick. The weather changed. I don't know. We're right. make a movie this year. Um, and uh, and so in that time, I was alone as an originating producer trying to get this thing going. Uh, I met, you know, Lance Henriksen. We were working on the script. I used the time that was frustrating to have to wait. I used the time to keep working on the script. But I also started thinking about where we wanted to shoot, what kind of team we wanted to assemble, how we would approach shooting the story, and what the music would be, and how much would there mm. be. And the more I thought about it, the less I thought there would be, although there's more music in Falling than one realizes. Um, if you listen to the soundtrack records out, by the way, it's called Music for Falling. So right. anywhere you stream or, you know, buy music online. And um, and I started to, I, I knew what scenes I probably wanted it in. And I figured maybe later on I'll remove some of it, but I'll just start imagining it, start composing it. And so much time went by and I was on my own. So I just started working on it. And then as we were shooting, even there were certain pieces of music I was thinking about. Mm. Uh, and when we were editing, I thought about it all the time. So that by the time we got to the end of the editing process, you know, and which was a good thing that, that we didn't spend much time on it, but we did it fast. I mean, I had it all composed and I got to get, you know, Buckethead and I put down everything we had to do in two days and mixed wow. boom score rather than weeks and weeks with an orchestra. It's, I knew what I wanted. I and and so that made it easier. And it was also advantageous because we were out of money at that point. Long <laughs> had run out. So. Right. Right. Yeah, um, I know we're going to run out of, <clears throat> we're going to run out of time here, but I just, I, for the people listening um, and, and who are huge fans as am I of the, uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. Um, if there's a certain memory or something um while making the film with the other actors, with Peter Jackson, being in New Zealand, whatever, uh, maybe just something to share uh, with people in terms of, of, of how whatever happened during that process um, maybe changed you, um, maybe, maybe made you a better person. Maybe, maybe um, it, it inspired you to make your own film, whatever that was. I'm just, I, I just to, just to, if you don't mind, uh, sure. I don't, Sorry to go there, but I know I know you're very proud of of these uh, three films as you yeah. should be, and um, so Lord of the Rings. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, on the one hand, the thing that I remember most fondly is the people that were working on this, and it's something that will never be repeated again in New Zealand or anywhere else, especially in New Zealand, because at that time there wasn't a history of making big movies like that in that country. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't even a history of making tons of movies there of any kind, good filmmakers, good mm -hmm. technicians, good actors coming out of there, including Peter Jackson, Jane Campion, um, you know, lots of other, you know, talented people, but not a huge history. So here's Peter Jackson at the head of this team of hundreds of people, most of which were New Zealanders, 
who'd had, in some cases, little or no experience with making movies, certainly nothing like this. Mm. And it, the most amazing thing was watching on a daily basis how Peter, in a collective way with all these people, solved little problems and big problems, you know, which is what movie making is about. It's like solving problems, getting over obstacles of all kinds. But they had huge obstacles. And so they would just invent new ways of filming, new ways of conceiving of, of shots and sequences and and it was remarkable it was like a wide open wild long long lasting film school i mean it was just unbelievable um apart from that and the friendships generated that are you know still hold up to this day with the people i got to know during that shoot in front of and behind the camera um the idea, the foundation of the story, uh, this idea, you know, certainly my character and the members of the fellowship, this idea of a multiracial, collaborative, uh, multilingual, multicultural group of people finding ways to collaborate and get through all kinds of obstacles. Uh, impossible against impossible odds is inspiring it always will be inspiring and that was reflected by the way the movie was made i have to say and it's ironic that images from that movie in particular images of let's say aragorn leading the charge against impossible odds thousands of orcs for example at the black gates or even at helm's deep or something that those have been used as propaganda by the extreme right wing Mm. The Arizona Republican Party or Vox, which is a neo-fascist, uh, anti-immigrant, misogynistic, throwback, scary uh, minority party, but not so minority. They have 52 seats in parliament here in Spain. They used an image of Aragon with a sword going and attacking, and it had all these like symbols that he was attacking, you know, mm. feminists, communists socialists, social democrats, uh, homosexuals, you know, it was like this insane, insane kind of thing. And I wrote a letter to the newspaper. They took it down. I said, this is ridiculous. This is a person who, you know, is for multiculturalism and is somebody who is a traveler right. who wants to have people work together and he wants to beat with them all kinds of different people it's the absolute opposite of what you guys are it's ridiculous you guys should read the book <laughs> you know right. Or, right. Or the movies carefully and and, right. and in the united states there's been a couple cases the arizona republican party used that too it's like we're gonna go get them i mean they used it in the same way that the QAnon lady from from georgia used the ar-15 mm. image where yeah. she's with the you know the three uh congresswomen yeah. So it's, 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 that's the thing I most value. And it's striking to me how those things can be perverted, you know, even the idea of, you know, being patriotic or, you know, wanting to help Americans or being pro democracy or even pro American, that can be perverted into something that's exclusive, that's exclusionary and racist and, and, you know, 
just not a good team player you know, as a person or as a society. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable how that happens, you know? So what are you going to do now? What's, uh, what's um, next? I do. Oh yeah. You were saying I, it was as difficult as I thought it would be to direct a movie really hard and really hard to get it to people during this pandemic year. It's been, I'm exhausted to be honest with you. Right. But, um, but every time that I engage about the story or about Lance Henriksen or anybody else in the story, and what the story talks about, the idea of communication and all that. Right. Trying to, then I'm, you know, I perk up again. But it, it was tough, but it was more rewarding and inspiring and collectively satisfying than I dreamed it w- could be, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Hope, but you never know. Right. And just the way the crew connected personally, the way audiences have connected to some degree with it, and no matter what country, that, that's been really it felt good. And, and I definitely want to do it again. You know, I, oh, I, can't, I can't wait to do it again. And I know it'll be difficult next time too, but I just, um, I, I, I like telling stories and I like telling stories in the movies because as complex as it is, it's, well, it's the very complexity of it, of having to work with lots of people with different skill sets and finding a way forward together. Um, I love that process. I really do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one. What are you doing? Are you you got something coming up that you're going to want to shoot? Well, yes, but I've what I've decided to. Well, I started this podcast like two weeks before the lockdown, so I'm oh. I'm kind of lucky. I, I built a studio here in my apartment, and um, so I've been able to to do 160 episodes during the pandemic of this uh, and during this election year. So mm-hmm. that's been. Great. But it's also been a time for me um, to, you know, I've had all this noise in my life for 30 years and, and to have quiet mm-hmm. and, you know, people are, you know, I live alone and they, are you okay? No, I'm, I'm doing great really. Cause <laughs> I've, I've been so out there yeah. for so many years yeah. to have this time to, uh, you know, take care of myself, to think about, the rest of my life. Um, but also to write, this is a, you know, this is, I mean, it's been a difficult time. Um, certainly New Yorkers, everybody, I think knows somebody, uh, who has died. Um, uh, it's, it's, this was a real death colony here back in the spring and summer. Um, but it's also, um, I decided at some point, instead of just worrying about whether I'm going to make it, uh, start writing. Just because it's quiet, nobody's <laughs> nobody's going to bother. Mm-hmm. And so I so I think what may come out of this with me is um, uh, one or two really cool films, um, a book that mm-hmm. I've been wanting to write for a long time. I even started writing poetry that I haven't done since high school. Oh, wow. Nothing right. that I would necessarily show to anybody, but it's but but it's been cathartic for me. Yes. Yes. So, so that's that's uh, you know what what I've been up to, and now that Trump is gone, um, we have that the new job of now let's create the country we want to live in. We are the majority, and let's keep um, our, let's keep our majority representatives honest. Let's keep them honest, and let's make sure they follow through on their promises. Yeah. And um, let's get everybody vaccinated, um, but let's make sure everybody has health care. Have you reconnected with a lot of people? Um, oh yes, 
Yes. In, in, in some, in really cool and profound ways. Like, you know, I started thinking my parents, if they were alive, would both turn 100 this year. And I started to think, I wonder if any of their friends are still alive. I'll bet you they're not because they'd all be in their late nineties or even over a hundred. And I, I decided one day to call up um, uh, the best man in their wedding. His name was Gene and call him up in Flint. And I, I had an old, old number. I hadn't talked to him in years. And I just, on a lark, I just thought I'd call. A woman mm-hmm. picks up the phone. And I'm thinking, oh, this is somebody else has got the number now. And I said, I, I was looking for Gene. And she says, Mike, she says, this is, I'm his daughter. Oh, my God. Well, then she's got to, I mean, she's got to be like 80. Right. And so I said, oh, I hate to ask this question, but is, is, Gene, is Gene still with us? Why, yes, he's right here. Would you like to talk to him? And I'm like, whoa. And and I, she handed the phone to him. He was, I mean, completely lucid on top of it, all wow. there. We had this great conversation about what's going on in the world, about the Detroit Tigers, about yeah. everything. I didn't day, man. Oh, wow. Well, it's just so, you know, yes. And he made my day. And we agreed to stay in touch here. And I know that he's going to be here next year. I mean, it's just, I don't know that, but it just sounded like he was not done with life. And it was so inspiring to me. And yeah, so I, so I've made a list of the people I know in their nineties. Yeah. And each week I try to call one of them people. Mm -hmm. Maybe I haven't spoken to in a long time. So I've done, I've done that sort of thing. And I've connected with old friends it's, it's, I mean, there are silver linings in this very dark time. And, yeah. um, and I've tried to look for them because I'm not a person, Vigo, that can run very long on, on what my friend calls hopium, uh, hopey hope. You know, it's like, it's like, I believe in hope. I am an optimist. I'm not a cynic, but I, uh, I'm a realist and I know the dark time we're in. Um, yeah. But I know that the only way I'm going to get through that is to find uh, ways, yeah, to to sort of grab onto life and and um and try to still experience it with people, even if it's in a virtual way. Well, so that's with people, man. It's like you, yeah. you, the moment you have a conversation, you know. First of all, there's always someone that's doing worse than you are. That's for sure. Right. But more than that, everybody has fears and doubts. And we sometimes get into ruts, whether we're young or old, where we think uh, it's almost like I'm the only person that's feeling this way. And that's not true. You know, you, we don't have we can live alone. Right. If we choose to. Right. But we don't have to be isolated or think we're the only person that have that has fears and doubts. We can share those fears and doubts with people. And one way to do it is just calling someone up. Yeah. Another way is to make a movie and share a story that might make them think about things that you can't even imagine they would think about. Right, you know, right. ideally that movie story is interesting enough to them that it becomes their movie more than yours by the time they're done seeing it. And right. then you've community, you might not meet that person, but they saw it. They got something from something you were feeling and sharing. Yes. It made them think about something. It made them come out of their corner. It's like, whoa, yeah, there's other people that have something like that. That makes me think, you know what? 
I haven't called this person for a long time. I just, that made me think of a person that I don't get along with, or we used to be friends. I'm going to call them up just like the pandemic is that. It's like, okay, we've been fighting forever, but now I wonder if he's sick. Right. You know, last time we spoke, it was hateful and, you know, we hung up on each other, whatever. We said everything to each other. Horrible. I'm going to call him or her up, you know? And I think, you know, this is one of the things in the story, too. I won't drag us back in too much, but, you know, the, the old man who has dementia, this and that, there's a point, but it should always be this way. But there certainly is a point when someone is at a certain age, certainly if they have dementia, it's like, it's too late to argue. It's too late to correct people. It's too late to hate people. You know, at a certain point, you got to just say, how can I serve you? Mm. What you should always right. do with your friends. How can I, on some level, serve you? If I care, then I care about what you feel and what you need and what you want. Even if we don't agree, how do I serve you? That's if we did more of that, I think we wouldn't be in such a rut communication. But that's that's another podcast, I suppose. Yes. When I wrote to you the other the other night and I didn't know what part of the world you were in or, you know, what was going on with you. And I remember as I was writing to you, I thought, geez, you know, um, this is such a good guy. Last time, you know, we, we've known each other now uh, on and off for these, you know, 16, 17 years. Last time I saw you was almost two years ago at the Cannes Film Festival. And, and I, and, and then, and then we, you know, uh, you sent me the movie and we, you know, we've communicated a bit, but not, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking as I'm writing this, this is don't wait till you want him to be on your podcast or, you know, introduce the, your, you know, film. And, you know, I'm showing your movie at my uh, virtual cinema. I have, I have two art houses that I run nonprofit in Michigan. Yes. And a film festival. And so when, when the booker said that your film was going to be available and she had seen it last year, I think at a festival or whatever, and she was in love with the film and she said, Oh, I'm so happy you're bringing this. I said, well, geez, I'm, I'm so glad I have the ability during this pandemic to share movies with people over my, it's called the virtual state, the virtual state.org. If anybody wants to watch falling on my platform, you're welcome to come and, and, and do that. And, and, uh, but it's, it's, you know, I'm glad you've brought this up. I think everybody listening to this right now is feeling exactly what you said and that we need to do more of this. This is how we're going to get through the final months, hopefully just months of this. Um, and um, <clears throat> and you and I need to talk more often. <laughs> yes, so. we do. Anytime. Doesn't yeah. have to be recorded. We can do whatever we want. But No, no. Uh, you sent me your poetry, you know, in, in the early right. days of this, like almost a year ago. Right. You know, this is, I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for the friendship. And, um, and you know, and I appreciate you doing this. Uh, of course, the, the the podcast and everything here, but I appreciate you as a human being, and and I honor your work and the things that that you have, the person you've tried to be, and what you stand for, um, and what you've expressed to us here today. All of this is, I know, going to stimulate some good thinking in people uh, listening to you, and I'm very appreciative of it. And, uh, and I will take advantage of your offer, uh, to come to Madrid, to come to Spain for the first time right. and, uh, stay in your, in your guest room. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually very tidy. 
and uh, clean. <laughs> the bed will be made every morning. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Well, send, I, me, I, send me to the market and, and I'll pick up the fruit right. and fruits and vegetables there for you. I look forward um, to it. But until then, if you ever want, I know you're very busy. We both are. But anytime you want to talk, you want to Skype or something like that. Yeah. I do that with Lance Henriksen, the guy who's 80 now who, who played yeah. uh, my father in the movie. He didn't have this stuff. And I said to him last August, September, I said, you know, the movie's coming out in these countries in Europe in the fall and hopefully this winter in the United States and Canada. And um, we're not going to be able to go to these places, obviously. Uh, so we're going to have to do a lot of this by Zoom and Skype. He goes, what the hell is that? And I said, <laughs> the computer, the computer. And so anyway, my son, Henry, uh, drove out to the desert where he lives in California and um, set him up. He had an old laptop, but it was not going to work. And so yeah. he made sure he had a, a newer one. And he set him up, showed him how to do the Zoom and the Skype. And we've been doing that. And it's like a new toy. You know, he forgets that I'm nine hours ahead of him. And the thing, if I haven't closed the lid on this laptop, it'll go ding dong, ding dong. <laughs> time it's like you know, a lot of times it's very late. And he'll say, what's the matter? Are you sleeping again? I go, yeah, yeah, what's up? You know, and then he'll right. just, he just likes to talk. And so it's wonderful. And we've had so many great conversations. I had a very last thing. Yeah. Funniest thing he did the other day. Well, it was about a month or so ago. You know, he, there's a scene in the movie. It's a very nice scene. It's a funny scene where he's going. He's not really happy about it, but he has to go to see a proctologist because he's had colon cancer before the character Willis. And it's time for his examination. And he's not going to go on his own. So I make sure he goes. So we take him there, right? And the guy who's plays the proctologist is director David Cronenberg, who's a really good actor. And, and as types, similar age, but it's just like oil and water. It was perfect, right? And um, kind of like very dry, the doctor, and not without a sense of humor. And Lance in that defensive, like, you know, attack mode, just like this verbal kind of, it's like a stand-up routine from some like crazed old comic. And uh, it worked out real well, right? And of course, we're shooting in Canada. So the crew was like, wow, David Cronenberg, you know, it's like a deity had walked on the set. Sure. Right. And then he, he told, cracked a couple of, you know, jokes and then everything calmed down. We got to work. And then he left. He was very efficient, very prepared, did a great job. And then I said to Lance, we were about to go and do something, shoot something else. I said, so how was that? He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, how'd you like working with him? Did that seem all right? You seemed like really into what you were doing. He goes, Oh yeah. He said, that was a, that was a pretty, that doctor gave me a run for my money. You know, he was really, you know, and that was great. He was perfect. Right. So anyway, a year later, you know, about a month or two ago, ding dong, ding dong. I'm like, Oh, hi Lance. I forgot to close the computer. I'm about to go to bed. And he's like, no, I just, you know what YouTube is? I go, yeah, you can do the YouTube all the time. And there's <laughs> everything on there that you could imagine. I go, yes. What are you even seeing? Did you just see something that got your attention? He goes, I certainly did. I saw you doing one of these things like we've been doing where you're sitting talking, you know, and uh, like we did back at the Sundance Film Festival. I go, a conversation. Yeah. And you were doing this with Dr. Klausner. I'm like, what the hell? Why? And you're talking about a David Cronenberg movie. 
And then I realized, <laughs> wait a minute, Dr. Klausner is David Cronenberg. Are you kidding me? You did not know that till now? Now, when you saw this YouTube thing? I had no idea. How should I know that? You didn't tell me. I said, oh, yeah, well, of course, because he's the director. You don't necessarily know what he looks like, right? He said, yeah, no. I said, but do you know his movies, right? He goes, yes, I've seen him. I love him. He's crazy. I love him. And I've seen your movies that you did with him. But I just didn't know that was him. I said, okay. Anyway. So, that's, a great, yeah. that's a great story. No, no, it's really. And, you know, in, <clears throat> my, my dad, I mean, my dad. Split this podcast into two, two. Yeah, no, no. It's <laughs> Maybe we'll do that. But it's, you know. So that you conclude the stuff we were talking about earlier before we even. Yes, yes, yes. I just wanted to say my dad lived to 93 and, and once he got the hang of uh, the computer email, these things, he was all over it. And it was such a great way to have that sort of almost daily communication with him, no matter what part of the country or world I was in. But this is another good thing to do during the pandemic to set up your grandparents or your parents yeah. uh, you with your, this. You both your parents get into that, learn about that? Yeah, both did. Yes, both both took to it. And but you know, again, I wasn't surprised because I was kind of raised in in a, a family that uh appreciated right. curiosity and and something new. And my mom, as a girl, traveled to the New York World's Fair in 1939. You know, when there weren't freeways or anything to get from Michigan to New York City. And and at that World's Fair, they introduced this new contraption called television. This is in the 1930s. And she saw that and and she would tell me all the other things that she saw there for the first time. But she was she both my parents were not afraid of the new. Yeah. Uh, they they. And they were Depression era kids. My dad was in World War II, so they were all part of that generation. But, but they also saw, I think, the that some of the people in their generation who couldn't exist in the new world uh, suffered as a result of it. Uh, didn't have the the life that they could have had. They just been a little less grumpy about change. Yeah. So, um, so yes. Yeah, so they were both that they were both that way, and. Uh, um, and and they were always that way with me. And I came home the first day of my sophomore year in college and said, I quit. <laughs> and they were like, what? I said, I don't, I don't. And, and I never went back and, um, and they never, they would ask occasionally if I wanted, maybe I, I might need a degree someday, but they never, there was never any sort of, well, you know, that's what he thinks he needs to do. And I, I know a lot of people didn't get that kind of upbringing, and I'm I, I'm, I'm loath to you talk about it sometimes because I know it's difficult for a lot of people. Uh, yeah. But but I I uh, I uh, I lucked out, and um, if you get to be ninety something or a hundred, I imagine you'll be open to the new. With that, I hope so. I, I, I yeah, no, no, I I hope so. Here today. Maybe gone today for any of us and uh, make, the um, most make the most of it. Vigo, thank you so much for exercise. You know, next time you start to get into an argument with someone yes. and they say something that you hate and you just want to say all kinds of things to them, just do this exercise. Pretend that you have this secret power. You know that person is going to die in about 20 minutes, right. get hit by a car, or they have terminal cancer. Then talk to them. And you can argue with them. 
Right. Would you want these to be the last 20 minutes? What's going on right now? I love and, that siren. That's perfect for our end. Yes, that is. Well, I, you know, I have, um, we're in New York City and I, I cracked the window. It's the winter. So you know how the old heaters are in these apartment buildings. Yeah. But, um, but I also, during this year, because of what we've all been living in here, yeah. I, I've, I've thought, you know, no, I don't want to soundproof and wall myself off from this city that I'm surviving in right now. And so I want, you know, whatever happens, happens during the podcast. And, uh, um, but thanks. That's a great exercise to do. And I'll throw one in. Here's one I do. Um, I'm waiting for somebody. We've made a plan to have dinner or we're going to go to a movie or whatever. And that person is late. And I'm waiting. It's 10 minutes late. Now it's 20 minutes late. And I used to get like so frustrated by this. And then one day, I don't know how this thought, probably something happened, but I've been like this ever since. Whenever somebody's late, my first thought is not that, hey, I'm getting stood up here. You know, my time is important. My first thought is, oh my God, I hope they're okay. That's I, hope, I hope something I hope they didn't get into an accident. I hope something bad just didn't happen in their lives that held them up. But I go for, they're late for a reason and be kind. So, um, boy, we've covered the gamut here. Now we are the, the, the new self-help book by Viggo Mortensen and Michael Moore <laughs> will be coming out in 2022. And uh, bless you and, and uh, see you soon. Yep. Take care of yourself. Take care. Uh, Viggo Mortensen, everybody. And the movie is Falling, his latest film, written, produced, directed, starring in, and this beautiful soundtrack. Um, I'm Michael Moore, and this is Rumble.